Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, June 3rd, 2014. Lots of work to do here today on the program. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word says. Now, a lot happened over the weekend. By the way, I uh, was in North Dakota over the weekend, uh, you know, getting things ready for the move. And so I was traveling uh, yesterday back from uh, North Dakota. And uh, and so, you know, technically I was out of the studio Friday and Monday. And I, uh, re- I recorded my program for Friday ahead of time. So um, yeah, I feel like, you know, there's a lot going on and I haven't been able to weigh in. And unfortunately, my schedule for the next few weeks is going to be crazy, kind of spotty. So this week, just a reminder, there will be four new episodes of Fighting for the Faith. Today's episode, tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, and then next week I'm moving. And so, you know, there will be no new episodes of Fighting for the Faith. And if you listen to Pirate Christian Radio, Tuesday's schedule will be a little bit altered uh, due to the fact that we have to uh, run the, the station off of a temporary server. So, you know, it's it's kind of a long story, but so, you know, uh, Wednesday, so Tuesday will be our awkward day that, you know, uh, for uh, the transition between uh, Indianapolis and uh, and Grand Forks. Wednesday should be a normal programming day for Pirate Christian Radio, but I I won't be actually uh, recording any programs next week. And then the following week. Uh, you know, there'll either be three or four new episodes of Fighting for the Faith. So, you know, just hold tight. And, you know, the schedule is going to be a little bit crazy through the end of uh, the end of the month. But just want to remind you all of that, uh, just so that you understand what's going on here. Pray for our move. 
uh, I feel like I'm burning the candle at both ends, and it's very difficult to kind of keep up with everything that's going on. But um, when we uh, when we left off last, my hope was that on Friday I would be able to get to a conversation between Rachel Held Evans, Matthew Vines, Tony Jones, and Jay Baker. Uh, we're going to get to that today. So hour number one is, in fact, we got to get right to it. Um, but over the weekend, the uh, the news broke about a uh, Southern Baptist church in uh, La Mirada, California. Um, I think that's where they're at. Um, and uh, anyway, they, they, they're they the first church in the SBC that has come out officially gay-affirming. Yeah, New Heart uh, Community Church in La Mirada, California. And um, this has created, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of a watershed moment for the Southern Baptist Convention. And because of the uh, of just how charged this issue is, with the Southern Baptist Convention having their you know their 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 big convention you know next week, uh, chances are that uh, this might turn into a huge national story. And uh, what the SBC does with this congregation is is uh, well, it's going to be interesting. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, and then what we'll do is uh so we'll we'll talk about the story of the uh the first southern baptist church southern baptist uh, uh congregation that is coming out and and being gay affirming we'll let albert muller explain to us uh just how important that is we'll be playing a portion of his uh briefing uh from yesterday so that you can just see you know just how important this is and then we'll uh, take a break when we come back from the break i'm going to play for you a portion of matthew vines's uh, latest video that literally I think just went up uh, yesterday, and uh, we're going to take a look at the exegesis uh, that uh, he puts forward in his you know you know being gay and Christian book, and uh, we'll actually open up our Bibles and take a look at what's going on there to examine his arguments in light of what God's Word really says, and notice how he really engages in some slippery exegesis, if you would. And then uh, we'll actually, and then we'll switch gears, and I'll, we'll play the uh, the uh, audio from the uh, conversation uh, between Rachel Held Evans, Tony Jones, Jay Baker, and Matthew Vines. Although we won't be playing Matthew Vines, it, I think it's interesting to note uh, what uh, Rachel Held Evans, Tony Jones, and Jay Baker have to say about Matthew Vines's book, particularly Tony Jones, because I think Jones kind of gets the uh, the weakness of Vines's approach. But uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. So that will uh, fill out the balance of uh, hour number one. Hour number two, we're going to head back to Narrate Church in Helena, Montana. And um, this is an interesting time of the year. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about here at Fighting for the Faith is that there's, well, uh, there is a uh, her- heresy hurricane season. Heresy hurricane season r- begins at the end of Labor Day in September and stretches until Memorial Day at the end of May and uh and, and you know that's the season you know and we're using United States holidays for this and so if we're, if there's going to be a major heresy that's coming it's going to occur during heresy hurricane season and there's kind of particular punctuated er, uh, eras or por- uh, times during heresy hurricane season that we're more likely to see uh while major heresies breaking out um, but now that we're out of heresy hurricane season, um, you know, what happens is, is generally things kind of settle down as most of the heretics, you know, they, they have enough money to go on exotic vacations and things like that. And so what happens at these uh, mega churches uh, where um, where the, uh, the, the lead pastor 
uh, goes on vacation, you know, early in the summer, oftentimes we have the ability to, how should we put this, see uh, the up-and-coming talent, uh, the future of the megachurch movement uh, by listening to sermons preached by their student pastors. Well, we're going to be listening to a, a sermon in hour number two from the student pastor at Narrate Church in Helena, Montana. His name is Caleb uh, Coder. And uh, <laughs> and uh, let's just say that uh, it's going to be quite the interesting uh, sermon that we will be listening to. So, uh, in fact, uh, uh, the, the two bad sermons we'll be listening to this week, uh, today's uh, the sermon we listened to today and the sermon that we listened to on Thursday, you know, can kind of be put under the general category of when youth pastors attack. I think that's a good way of putting it. So that's how we're going to end out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable um, you know, we have a, a lot of ground to cover. And today's episode, you know, I, well, uh, because of the uh, the topic, you know, could prove to be controversial. It's not controversy for the sake of controversy, but instead it's controversy for the sake of truth and for the sake of the gospel. Because um, what's at stake with, you know, affirming gay marriage and things like that is uh, is the truth of the gospel being lost. You know, Christ came to save sinners straight up. And scripture makes it very clear what is and what isn't a sin. And so Christ has come to set us free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. He has not set us free so that we can go and practice lawlessness. That's that's not it at all. So, you know, you got to understand these things correctly. But um, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and we're going to start with a news story from the Huffington Post regarding this church in uh, La Mirada. So... From the uh, Huffington Post, the headline reads, California Baptist Church changes views on homosexuality after pastor's gay son comes out. Yeah, this is uh, by Antonia Bloomberg of the uh, Huffington Post. The story reads, a Baptist church in California has voted to welcome the gay community despite going against the Southern Baptist Convention's view on homosexuality. The New Heart Community Church in La Mirada, California, faced a difficult decision in early 2014 when lead pastor Danny Cortez told the congregation that his son, Drew, had come out and that he himself no longer agreed with the church's teachings on homosexuality. A month later, the church said in a statement that it would investigate the issues surrounding same-sex marriage and vote on May 18th whether to dismiss Cortez or not. Um, On the date scheduled, the congregation took a vote and elected to keep Cortez in his post and to change its official stance on homosexuality. In a letter to Patheos blogger and founder, unfundamentalist Christians, John Shore, uh, Cortez says that the church had voted not only to let him stay, but to become a third-way church, which he said indicates agreeing to disagree and not casting judgment on other lifestyles. Quote, this is a huge step for a Southern Baptist church, he added. And in his coming uh, coming out video posted on YouTube on February 7th, uh, 15-year-old Drew Cortez offered a message to other gay teens struggling with their identities. Quote, I kind of wish I could just hug them and tell them you're perfect the way you are. You don't have to change because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God still loves them for who they are. So <clears throat> clearly we've got uh, – there's part of the story here regarding the this uh, this church in La Mirada, part of the story is, well, um, we're dealing with a, a pastor whose son has uh, has come out and said that he's gay. Um, by the way, gay is not a gender. It's not. God makes people male or female. 
But uh, we'll get to some of that in the exegesis portion of today's episode. Now, this is an important watershed moment for the Southern Baptist Convention because as they come together in their convention next week, um, they, they're they going to have to do something about this. You know, will they um, disfellowship from this church? And if they don't, what does that mean? If they do, what does that mean? And by the way, the reality of this is that this is going. This has all of the makings of a huge national story, and uh, so to kind of give us the, an update and you know the lowdown on just how important that is, here is uh, Albert Mueller from yesterday's briefing, uh, explaining um, uh, regarding what what a third way church is, and and talking about the fact there's no such thing as a third way church, and then going on to explain the importance of this particular issue regarding this church in uh, La Mirada, California. Here's Albert Muller from the briefing. Here we go. The issue of homosexuality now looms over every denomination, every church, every school, every politician, and eventually every American citizen, including, of course, every American Christian. That becomes increasingly clear as any option to evade the issue evaporates and as so-called middle positions also continue to crumble. As I've been saying for some years now, this is inevitable. There is really no middle position on this issue, and recent events have made that abundantly clear. In fairly short order, and sooner rather than later, every American is going to be put on the spot, asked the question about beliefs on the issue of homosexuality and, of course, the related issue of same-sex marriage. In recent days, that very argument is being made from the opposite side of the issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. On the other side, you have Tony Jones, who's been known for years now as a major figure in the emergent church. Tony Jones, writing back on May the 20th, pointed to the fact that there really is no third way on the issue of homosexuality and gay marriage. Jones points to the example of mainline Protestantism in general, the Presbyterian Church USA in particular, when he suggests that a denomination or a church may study the issue, but eventually it takes a vote, and it takes a vote about whether or not to allow its clergy to perform same-sex unions. He then writes, quote, and the same goes for an individual congregation. At some point, every congregation in America will decide either, yes, same-sex marriages will take place in our sanctuary, performed by our clergy, or no, same-sex marriages will not take place in our sanctuary, performed by our clergy. He then writes in bold face, there is no third way on that. A church either allows same-sex marriages or it does not. He then writes in conclusion, what I'm saying is that a church or an organization can study the issue in theory. They can even do so for years, he says, but this really isn't a third way or a middle ground position. Instead, he says it's a process, and at some point that process has to end and practices have to be implemented. At that point, there is no third way. You either affirm marriage equality in your practices or you do not, end quote. Now, I rarely find a point of agreement with Tony Jones, at least to my mind, this is the very first, but on this argument, I am in profound agreement with him. On the opposite side of the question, of course, but in profound agreement with the importance of the question and with the essential fact that this is not just a question of theory, but of inevitable church practice. And eventually, the church will make its decision. And when a church or an organization, a denomination or an institution makes that decision, there is no possibility of a third way. Now, a very interesting issue on this has appeared earlier this year when a vineyard pastor by the name of Ken Wilson wrote what he entitled, A Letter to My Congregation. It was subtitled, An Evangelical Pastor's Path to Embracing People Who Are Gay, Lesbian, and Transgender in the Company of Jesus, end quote. 
Ken Wilson released that letter as a short book form available electronically and digitally. And in that book, he made the argument that there is the possibility of a third way. And he intended to at least demonstrate a third way in a congregation that would be made up of those who are in various places on this issue. But that's a matter of theological and intellectual dishonesty. Because if the church is allowing openly gay persons, gay persons in open relationships, and the performance of same-sex ceremonies and the related kinds of rites within the church, then it is a gay-affirming church. It is affirming the normality and acceptability of homosexuality and same-sex relationships. There is no way then to declare that there's a third way. Tony Jones is exactly right. A church either will or will not allow the performance of same-sex ceremonies and, for that matter, allow the clergy and ministers of that church to perform same-sex ceremonies. The church that does allow such is a church that affirms homosexuality, whether it intends to say so explicitly or not. And a church that does not do that is going to be well-recognized as a church that, having faced the decision, is taking its stand in the biblical understanding of marriage as the exclusive union of a man and a woman and is rejecting so-called gay marriage or same-sex marriage as something that is not only not going to be practiced by the church or accepted by the institution, but is that which is understood to be directly contrary to Scripture. But all of this hits very close to home when just a few days ago, blogger John Shore at Patheos.com put up an article entitled, Southern Baptist Pastor Accepts His Gay Son Changes His Church. John Shore printed a letter written by Pastor Danny Cortez of the New Heart Community Church near Biola in suburban Los Angeles. The pastor wrote, My name is Danny Cortez, and I pastor a small Southern Baptist church in La Mirada, California. We're about a mile from Biola University in a very conservative neighborhood. Anyway, I recently became gay-affirming after a 15-year journey of having multiple people in my congregation come out to me every year. I scoured through your whole website and read everything I could, and it was especially the testimony of my gay friends that helped me to see how they had been marginalized that my eyes became open to the injustice that the church has wrought. End quote. He then writes about one specific day in August of last year, that is, in August of 2013. He describes being at the beach on a sunny day, and he said, quote, I realized I no longer believed in the traditional teachings regarding homosexuality. End quote. He then went on to say, as I was trying to figure out what to tell my church, I was driving in the car with my 15-year-old son, Drew, and as he tells the story, a song came on that was associated with homosexuality. It was, to use the expression used by the pastor, gay-affirming. Pastor Cortez then told his 15-year-old son, quote, I told him that I did know, and that's why I liked the song. That is, the song was gay-affirming. He said, quote, I also told him that I no longer believed what I used to believe, end quote. But if the pastor surprised his 15-year-old son with that statement about the change in his position on homosexuality, just moments later, the son turned the table, and the 15-year-old told his father, Dad, I'm gay. Pastor Cortez then writes, My heart skipped a beat, and I turned towards him, and we gave one another the biggest and longest hug as we cried. And all I could tell him was that I loved him so much and that I accepted him just as he is. End quote. He went on to say this, I couldn't help but think that my 15-year journey was in preparation for that moment. If it wasn't for this 15-year journey and my change in theology, I may have destroyed my son through reparative therapy. 
Well, as the pastor continues to tell the story, on February the 7th, 2014, his son Drew made a coming out video. On February the 9th, he told the church about his position, and the pastor has posted on the internet the hour-long message he gave to his congregation about his change on the issue of homosexuality. After he told his church about the change in position, the church voted on March the 9th to prolong a period of study and prayer and discernment until May the 18th. On May the 18th, that's just a few Sundays ago, the church voted not to dismiss the pastor and, quote, instead to become a third-way church. In parenthesis, he wrote, agree to disagree and not cast judgment on one another. He went on to say this is a huge step for a Southern Baptist church, end quote. Lest anyone miss the point, he says, quote, so now we will accept the LGBT community even though they may be in a relationship. We will choose to remain the body of Christ and not cast judgment. We will work towards graceful dialogue in the midst of theological differences. We see that this is possible in the same way that our church holds different positions on the issue of divorce and remarriage. In this issue, we were able to not cast judgment on our disagreement. But that particular paragraph is directly contradicted by the one that follows the very next paragraph in the pastor's letter. He then writes, quote, Unfortunately, many who voted to remain traditional will now separate from us in a couple of weeks. We are in the period of reconciliation and forgiveness. Please pray for us in this. Then, on June 8, we will formally peacefully separate, restate our love for one another, and bless each other as we part ways. It has been a very tiring and difficult process. End quote. Well, let's just look at those two paragraphs again. And the one is stacked right on top of the other. In the first, Pastor Cortez says that the church has chosen to agree and yet to disagree to agree to disagree, to allow all positions, both positions, any number of positions within the congregation. But then he states explicitly that many who hold to the traditional position are separating from the church and will do so formally on June the 8th. That's this coming Sunday. But he is also contradicting himself, not just in the paragraph that follows his declaration that they will agree to disagree, but also in the preceding paragraphs where he makes very clear that, quote, we will accept the LGBT community even though they may be in a relationship. We will choose to be in the body of Christ, he says, and not cast judgment. Well, as you look at that, it's very clear that the church is not taking a third-way position. It's not taking a position of neutrality. It is declaring itself. And all those who remain within that congregation and all congregations that remain in fellowship with that church are also affirming the gay-affirming position. That is simply inevitable, given the fact that if you choose to become a part of this congregation or to remain a part of this congregation, you are profoundly making that statement. And if the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association, the larger California Southern Baptist Convention, and the Southern Baptist Convention itself maintains any kind of association with this church, the entire denomination and all of its component parts will also be inevitably gay-affirming. To his credit, in his video, Pastor Cortez is very clear about the fact that he recognizes that his change in position represents a radical shift in the understanding of his own church and the biblical teachings the church had understood since its founding. And also, he understood that his position, his new position, is a radical shift in terms of the confession of faith of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Baptist faith and message that was revised in the year 2000 in such a way as to make explicit the fact that Southern Baptists believe that the Bible 
Bible reveals very clearly the sinfulness of homosexual acts and homosexual relationships, and thus the biblical impossibility of endorsing same-sex relationships, much less so-called same-sex marriage. But as you look at this, you come to recognize that what we have just days before the meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention in Baltimore in June is that the Southern Baptist Convention will now be forced by the action of this congregation to take the action to disfellowship the church from the fellowship of the Southern Baptist Convention. Otherwise, the SBC and all of its member churches and all its component parts will join in an act of biblical infidelity. This is a very difficult issue for any denomination, but it is also an inescapable issue. And I am absolutely assured that when Southern Baptists meet in Baltimore in a matter of just a few days, as a matter of fact, convening just 48 hours after this church will say goodbye to its traditional members that disagree with the new direction of the church, I'm absolutely convinced that the Southern Baptist Convention and the messengers to that convention will do what responsibility requires the convention to do. Several years ago, the convention adopted membership requirements that made very clear that any church that affirms homosexuality is to be excluded from the Southern Baptist Convention and its membership. That is the kind of position that reflects the biblical reality. There is no third way. And even as this kind of decision is necessary, it is done with a brokenness of heart that is the case any time a disciplinary action must be taken either in the context of a local church or in the context of a Baptist association or a denominational agency or unit. The Constitution of the Southern Baptist Convention explicitly excludes from membership congregations, quote, which act to affirm, approve, or endorse homosexual behavior, end quote. The denomination's position on the issue is clear. The resolve of the denomination is also, I believe, very clear. But the convention now faces just that kind of decision that will eventually be faced by every denomination, by every church, by every Christian institution and school. But this much is already clear, and in this case, graphically clear. There is no third way. There is no middle ground. A church or a denomination or a denominational school or Christian institution will either affirm homosexuality or it will not. There is no middle ground. And when it comes to something like same-sex marriage, that becomes even more clear because either it will be allowed and recognized or it will not. And if so, there will be no question about where the church or institution stands. So Southern Baptists now head to Baltimore next week with a very big issue on the agenda. And as we stated so often, an inescapable issue an unavoidable issue, an issue that demands, and demands urgently, a decision. Yeah, I think Albert Muller understands just what's at stake, and he seems pretty confident that the Southern Baptist Convention is going to uh, take the steps necessary to um, disfellowship uh, that particular congregation in La, La Mirada, but keep this in mind. This is going to be a national story. I just you know, maybe I, maybe it won't, but I think it really has the potential to kind of blow up into one of those big national news stories. And so, uh, yeah, the SBC there'll be a price to pay for them standing up for what the Bible teaches on this matter. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith dot com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We'll be listening to some of Matthew Vines' arguments in, in favor of uh, God and gay Christianity, and we'll show you how to unpack that and refute it. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Promo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Pageant are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Bum, 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 bum. 
back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your third way uh, gay affirming church. And it should. Because the gospel message calls all sinners to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And uh, this is a partnership. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian radio it's a great way to support us and of course if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then set it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 let me thank you for your support we cannot do what we are doing here without it okay moving along what we're going to be doing right now is we're going to be listening to uh the brand new i mean it's actually published today uh on matthew vines's uh youtube account called god and the gay christian uh the biblical case in support of same-sex relationships yeah that's right he's apparently trying to put out a biblical case in support of same-sex relationships we're going to take a look at the exegesis that he engages in here and then we'll uh we'll uh circle back and listen to uh tony jones and rachel held evans and maybe jay baker you know in in their conversation with matthew vines regarding his book so here is uh matthew vines's video uh god and the gay christian here we go Marriage equality is on the rise. But despite this trend, religious beliefs remain a major obstacle to acceptance. Many conservative Christians believe that the Bible condemns all same-sex relationships. And it does. That question drove my own intensive study of this issue when I came to terms with being gay. As both my parents and my church in Kansas believed that gay marriage was wrong. It is. But what I learned when I studied the relevant scripture passages changed my parents' minds along with the views of many other Christians in my life. There are six passages in the Bible that refer to same-sex behavior, three in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to give you the list here, and he's left one out, okay? And there's a reason why he left it out, but we'll get to that. So uh, Genesis 19, talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, and then Romans 1.26-27, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 9, 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. And he's left one out. He he has left one out. So we will uh, point that out. But as soon as somebody starts off with the argument, like, well, there's only six verses in the Bible that even mention this, you know, um, you know you're in for a, a fight, okay? Because what they're going to do, and this is what Matthew Vines is going to basically do, he's going to try to make it so that what the text says on its face isn't what it means, okay? So despite the fact that when you read the words, the words are very clear regarding God's view of homosexual behaviors as well as lusts, okay, the, the two go hand in hand, uh, that what they're trying to do is make the text mean the opposite or something different than what they actually say if you just read the text, okay? This is what we call first-level reading in hermeneutics. 
on its face, on the surface, the texts are very clear. But what he's going to try to do here is give us arguments as to why they don't the, these passages don't actually mean what they say. So let's uh, hear his argument. The most famous passage is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends two angels disguised as men into the city of Sodom, where the men of Sodom threaten to rape them. The angels blind the men, and God destroys the city. For centuries, this story was interpreted as God's judgment on same-sex relations. But the only form of same-sex behavior described is a threatened gang rape. Now, this argument is omitting the seventh verse that talks about this. So he's going to go to Ezekiel chapter 16 in order to uh, give us uh, what's really going on with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you have your Bible, also open up to Jude. Mm -hmm. The epistle of Jude. It's only one chapter long, but we'll get there. Hang on. Ezekiel 16.49 sums up the story's focus on violence and hostility towards strangers. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. In Leviticus 18... Uh, And that's it. So apparently, you know, uh, Ezekiel... Uh, 16 just makes it clear what was really going on there in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was, well, they, they didn't help the needy. Um, that's pretty much it, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot more than that. And this is the seventh verse that he left out. And the reason why he left this out is because this contradicts his argument. Okay, now we're going to add some context to this. We'll go to Jude verse five and we'll read forward. And you'll notice in verse seven uh, that Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned. Okay, now truly it was very unhospitable of the men of Sodom to want to gang rape uh, a couple of uh, angels who were uh, disguised as men. I mean, truly, I mean that's that's a poor way to treat people. I, I agree. But it was more than that. Okay, now Jude verse 5 says this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality uh-huh, and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now remember, Matthew Vine said, well, there's only six verses that deal with same-sex anything, right? And so he's reinter- he's basically saying so- the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19 can't be used against same-sex uh, attraction and things like that um, because re- Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, 49 says that they were just a bunch of, uh, of people who didn't help the poor and they were unhospitable. But Jude verse 7 makes it clear that why Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. Listen again. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> and the funny thing here is uh, the, uh, the, the, the ESV, what it translates as unnatural, um, it, it's heteros. Uh-huh. 
um, yeah, it's, you, know, you know, they pursued, you know, unnatural desire. It, we're talking about same-sex desire. And they serve as an example undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So already we've got a real problem here. And that is is that Matthew Vines' um, exegesis, he claims there's only six verses that talk about same-sex anything. And he's purposely omitted a seventh verse, which would have contradicted his uh, explanation of what's going on in Genesis 19. In other words, Jude verse 7 makes it so that when we talk about people, uh, you know, the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, as being an example of God punishing, you know, same-sex unnatural desires and things like that, sexual immorality, Jude verse 7 makes it clear that's uh, that's a proper understanding of that text. Now, Ezekiel 16.49 gives us a wider uh, understanding of what, what else was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it, but for sure, Jude verse seven makes it clear they were punished for their sexual immorality. We continue. In twenty-two, male same-sex intercourse is prohibited. Okay, now his argument here is Leviticus eighteen twenty-two and Leviticus twenty thirteen says that same-sex intercourse is prohibited. And you know he's absolutely right. Let's take a look at the verse, uh, Leviticus chapter uh, eighteen. We will look at verse twenty-two so you can hear what the text says. And uh, which I find it interesting. He's not actually giving us, you know, what's going on in the verse. But here's what it says. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. That's right. You, so you get the idea here. Is in fact, you know, it, doing that is contrary to nature. Okay. It's absolutely contrary to what God has created. And I would even add there's another passage that um, Matthew Vines has left out. But we'll get to that in a second. So let's take a look also at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. And uh, see what it says here. It says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Okay, so Leviticus 18, 22, and uh, Leviticus 20, verse 13, you know, are, give us, how shall we put this, um, you know, a more, more detail regarding uh, the, uh, the prohibitions of sexual immorality in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, and and what that all entails. Now, under the new covenant, we are not we are not under the Mosaic covenant. But this is important. the uh, The new covenant is not without commands regarding sexual morality and sexual immorality. Okay, the new covenant has very explicit commands. In fact, um, all of the uh, all of the commands of the Decalogue get rolled into the new covenant. And uh, and they help define what sin is. So his argument's going to be though that oh the the old covenant's passed. Yeah, but see that doesn't quite under you know explain what's called continuity and discontinuity between the covenants. That that that's an, which by the way is an important thing for you to keep in mind. But what I was also going to point out is that um, there is another passage okay that deals with uh, the issue of uh, a same sex attraction and things like that. And it's Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And um, the idea behind it is is that we've got in Genesis chapter 2 how God made um, you know, uh, the, the Adam and Eve. And so here's what we read, Genesis chapter 2. And let's take a look at verse 18 is where we'll begin. Here's what it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And and the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit or suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the idea here is, is that in the Hebrew, you, you kind of miss this in the, uh, in the English, but when you translate this passage from the uh, Hebrew, it talk about that no suitable uh, helper was found or fit, you know, uh, you know, was found that was fit for him. The, uh, the idea in the Hebrew, and it's a very graphic word picture, it, it's kind of implying a mirror image. Think of it as a, a reverse image of a jigsaw puzzle. It's not just saying suitable, a, a helper f- suitable for him, but one that in, it actually complements him perfectly. And we're, and we're talking at this point physically, okay? You know, this is, and so I'm sorry, but this also has to come into play. When we look at how God created humanity, he created humans, male and female. And so the, the I, there's there's literally a you know going back to how God has made us and Jesus Himself makes it clear that uh, you know He rolls up uh, uh, Genesis chapter two in talking against divorce that the way God intended things to be you know to be was that you know they would be male and female and the two would become one flesh. This is how God created it. I mean, this is why human anatomy works the way it does. Okay. Is that you know you know man and women you know kind of you know they 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 have interlocking pieces. That's probably the way, good way of putting. It. And that's what's going on there in Genesis two. So the idea then is is that as human sinfulness really takes off because we're all born dead in trespasses and sins, humans abandon the natural order in which God has made them, and they instead you know, burn in lust towards, you know, people of the same sex. And this is contrary to Scripture. And the Levitical, uh, the Levitical uh, commands here in Leviticus 18 and 20 make it clear that, you know, under the, uh, you know, under God's divine law in the Mosaic Covenant, that was considered sexual immorality. The punishment uh, would be the death penalty, right? And the same for, you know, the same for adultery, the same for other forms of sexual immorality. And that's what same-sex attraction and same-sex sex is. It's sexual immorality. But now let's listen to his argument because he's going to come up with a clever argument that if you take it to its logical conclusion, well, let's, you know, let's just say the Wild West reigns again. Here we go. And violators are to receive the death penalty. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Other things called abominations in the Old Testament include having sex during a woman's menstrual period, eating pork, rabbit, or shellfish. Okay, now, so his his argument here is, well, these other things are called abominations in the Mosaic Law. So, okay. And charging interest on loans. But they're part of the Old Testament law code, which was fulfilled by Jesus. Now, this is true. That does not mean, however, 
that the law doesn't serve a function or that the the you know the the moral aspects of God's law that get rolled into the new covenant don't apply because it's not as if the new covenant doesn't have laws and commands it does and so this is a slippery argument Hebrews 8:13 says that the old law is obsolete and aging yeah this is true Romans 10 verse 4 says that Christ is the end of the law yeah, the Mosaic Covenant, that's correct. He's the end of that. So the Old Testament doesn't settle the issue for Christians. Right, it doesn't in and of itself. You have to look at the New Covenant and the New Testament to see now how is sexual morality addressed under the New Covenant. But let's look to the New Testament, which yeah, let's do that. contains the longest reference to same-sex behavior in the Bible. In Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, people who turn away from God to worship idols are then turned over to their own lusts and vices. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men committed shameful acts with other men. Now, here's the problem. He's limiting this, the way he's phrased this, he's limiting this to people who worship idols. That's not what's going on in Romans chapter 1. And so we're going to need to take a look at this passage, and I'm going to actually read to you from my translation, Okay. Um, yeah, I, I've, I have recently reworked this section in my – I have my own translation of the, the Bible I'm working on. But this is from my translation, starting at verse 18, and I want you to notice the progression. Okay, so you can follow along in your Bible. Here's what it says. For the wrath of God from heaven is being revealed against all impiety and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so list, so the argument begins in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all impiety and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Now, how is, then is this wrath of God you know, uh, unfolding and being revealed? Here's what it says. Because the knowledge of God is clearly known among them, for God has made it clear to them. For his unseen attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature... Uh, from the creation of the world are clearly discerned, being understood by what is made so that men are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not give glory to him as God or give thanks, but they were rendered futile in their reasoning and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, now notice the progression. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They know God by the creation. His God's invisible or unseen attributes are clearly discerned in the creation. And men refuse to worship God and give glory to God as God. And therefore, God renders their thinking futile and he darkens their foolish hearts. Mm -hmm. So that's the progression. Okay, And this isn't against idolaters. Okay, idolatry is one of the results of what's going on here. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all impiety and men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, who refuse to acknowledge and give glory to God as God. So God darkens their foolish hearts and makes their reasoning futile, claiming to be wise. They were made to become fools. Okay, and so now then begins the progression. And they exchanged. So they were they claimed to be wise, but they were made to become fools. God has made them fools. And the result of this is that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God with the likeness images of mortal man, birds, and four-footed animals, and reptiles, and creeping things. 
So therefore, so, so idolatry is the result of men suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. God, it, it, it's, this is a very important point. The scripture here is not saying that, that God hands idolaters over to homosexuality. That's not what Romans 1 is saying. Romans 1 is making it clear that there's a progression here. Because men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God darkens their foolish hearts, and their rendering is, is rendered futile, uh, their, the reasoning is rendered in, uh, futile. They claim to be wise, but they were, made, they were made by God to become fools, so foolish that they exchanged the glory of God for idols, I, you know, in images made in you know, the likeness of man and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. Next verse, therefore, God handed them over to lusts, the lust of their hearts, to immorality, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The progression continues. The progression doesn't begin with idolatry. The progression begins with men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so God, therefore, is handing them over to the lust of their hearts, to immorality, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God with a lie. They worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And because of this, God handed them over to dishonorable passions and their women exchanged the natural sexual function for that which is contrary to nature. Okay. Again, Genesis 2 comes into play here. So because of God's wrath, because men suppress the truth, truth and unrighteousness, God darkens their hearts, renders their thinking futile, and he hands them over to dishonorable passions. Notice what it's saying here. So even having the hots for somebody of the same sex, according to Romans 1, is what? A dishonorable passion. And their women, they exchange the natural sexual function for that which is contrary to nature, think contrary to how God designed them, right? And also, likewise, the males abandoned the natural sexual function of the female, and they were inflamed in their desires towards one another, male with male, committing disgraceful deeds and receiving in themselves the penalty that is necessary for their error. Again, that's from my translation of this text. And it's very clear what's going on here. There's the progression begins not with idolatry. The progression begins with men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and God hands them over to ever increasing sinfulness. Right? That's what's going on. And you, by the way, it doesn't stop there with the homosexual passions and behavior. Okay, it continues on uh, to you know things as you know the debased a uh, debased mind where there's evil covetousness malice envy murder strife deceit maliciousness gossip slanders of god insolent haughty boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents and paul here is basically showing here the progression and that in in his argument at the end of it we're all shown to be sinners and this is so that he can then preach the gospel in Romans 3. Um, you know, after making it clear that no one seeks for God, here's what he says. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. Uh, the, uh, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitter, bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is everybody. So now Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
for by works of the law no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's its you know, major function here is to show us our sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift um, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or atonement by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. So the idea here is, is that Paul's argument that begins in uh, Romans one eighteen ends with the good news of the free forgiveness of sins to all sinners, sinners of all stripes. That would include people who are sexually immoral, who are gossips, slanderers, idolaters, and even people who have um, same-sex passions and lusts. Yeah, that's that's kind of the point of what's going on here. So you get the reason I brought all this up is because Matthew Vines here, you know, basically saying, "Oh, well, this is describing what how God punishes idolaters." No, this is this God, this is describing a progression that begins first with people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul's words here are clearly negative, but the behavior he condemns is lustful. He makes no mention of love. Uh, no, see, you got to understand here something, um, Matthew, and that is, is that it's not that they were condemned for lustful behavior. It's that they were abandoning, okay? They were exchanging the natural sexual function for that which is contrary to nature. That's what Romans 1 says. You know, let me read again. Because of this, God handed them over to dishonorable passions, uh-huh, to even be attracted to somebody of the same sex is a dishonorable passion, and this results in them, their women exchanging the natural sexual function for that which is contrary to nature, and also likewise, the males abandoned the natural sexual function of the female, and they were inflamed in their desires towards one another, male with male, committing disgraceful deeds and receiving in themselves the penalty that is necessary for their error. So here's the idea here. He's saying, well, because these were described as, as lustful passions, uh, this this is not condemning love and commitment and faithfulness to in a monogamous same sex context. Um, sorry, but Romans one is arguing that they're abandoning natural sexual functions of the women and the men, and and that the very the very passion you know and lust toward or attraction towards somebody else of the same sex is actually part of this progression that God hands you over, it's, a, it's basically a, a dishonoring passion. Commitment or faithfulness. His description of same-sex behavior is based solely on a burst of excess and lust. No, it's not. It's a progression that shows God's wrath against humanity. In the ancient world, same-sex behavior mainly occurred between adult men and adolescent boys. It doesn't matter how it normally manifested. Just because that was the manifestation in the ancient world doesn't somehow make it so that in a modern-day manifestation where we don't have slavery, uh, that that somehow is okay. It's not. It's very clear in Romans 1 that it's a dishonorable passion to even be attracted to somebody of the same sex. Between masters and their slaves, or in prostitution, most of the men engaged in those practices were married to women. 
So same-sex behavior was widely seen as stemming from out-of-control lust, a vice of excess. It uh, doesn't matter how people in the wider context of the Roman world viewed it. R- Romans 1 makes it clear God's view of it. Okay, This is all part of God's wrath that's being revealed against humanity and people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Like gluttony or drunkenness. And while Paul labels same-sex behavior unnatural, he says in 1 Corinthians... No, no, no. Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he did there. Although Paul, you know, makes it, you know, labels it as unnatural. No, no, no. God, the Holy Spirit, who is inspiring Paul to write Romans, says that it's contrary to nature. Referring back then to how God created us in Genesis chapter 2. 11.14, that for men to wear their hair long also goes against nature. And most Christians interpret that as a reference to cultural conventions. Yeah, again, this is, okay, Paul's argument, God, the Holy Spirit's argument in Romans 1, has nothing to do with culture. It has to do with the creation. In the last two likely references to same-sex behavior in the Bible. Yeah, which are 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and uh, 1 Timothy 1, 10. Let's take a look at those real quick. Um, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. Hang on a second here. I got to get there. Uh, 6, 9. Okay. Let me read it in its uh, uh, in its bigger context so that you can kind of get see what's going on here. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Um, you know, uh, uh, verse one. We'll start at verse one and keep reading. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? You're thinking, well, what does this have to do with? Yeah, just trust me. It's all part of the argument here because verse nine begins with a conjunction or. Uh huh. Which means something that's going on in the in the preceding context is important for us to get. So, one of you has a grievance against another. Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try uh, trivial cases? Do you not know that that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before believers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But your brothers, uh, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, the the, uh, ESV kind of conflates this idea, men who practice uh, homosexuality. Uh, The Greek text is actually a little bit more explicit. It talks about the malakoi and the arsenikoitai. Malakoi, you have to think of it in this this way. In a homosexual act, there is... um, a dominant person and somebody who is the receiver. Okay, uh, think of it as the you know the the guy playing the role of the receiver is is the one who is closest to the woman in the uh, in the in the act. Does that make any sense? And so here, scripture is talking about uh, you know the dominant one and the receiver. The malakoi is the receiver, the uh, the, the soft one. 
and the arsenokoitai would be the aggressor, the one who's, you know, the dominant in the act. Okay, so in, in our translations, it gets squished down to men who practice homosexuality, but it's referring both kind of on the receiving end and the giving end. Does that make sense? So, uh, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Does this make it sound like there's no, uh, that, you know, that the new covenant is all about lawlessness? Not at all, right? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ah, okay. So, notice here, the law is serving its function to identify sin, and Christians are no longer identified with those sins. They are washed, they are forgiven, they are justified, declared righteous through the gospel by by God himself, through what Jesus did on the cross. And so, the idea here is, is that in the list of things, it is not just... Uh, homosexual acts and in you know things like that. But it's also talking about adult uh, adultery and idolatry, and being a thief or being greedy or a drunkard and a reviler or a swindler. All of the you know it's very clear. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. But as such, were 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 some of you, but in Christ you are no longer that. You were set free from bondage to those sins. So um, yeah, let's continue. So you now know what those texts, say, uh, what that text says. Let's take a look at the First Timothy one ten, which is uh, basically uh, uh, you know a cross reference here to that same verse. First uh, Timothy one ten. Uh, I'll start at verse uh, eight. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Notice how Paul here he's not abandoning the uh, the Mosaic law altogether. He's, it has a right function. Its proper function function now for Christians is to show us what sin is. Right. Understanding this, that the law is not, is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality. There it is, you know, arsenicoitai and malakoi again. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now notice, homosexual acts are considered to be contrary to what? Sound doctrine. Matthew Vines is trying to put out a book that basically is saying, no, no, we've misunderstood these texts and sound doctrine is to embrace same-sex relationships. Bible, two Greek words, malakoi and arsenikoitai are included in lists of people who will not inherit God's kingdom. Many modern translators have rendered these terms as sweeping statements about gay people. But the concept of sexual orientation didn't even exist in the ancient world. Uh, stop. Okay, so this isn't an argument. The, the idea of sexual orientation, the Bible rules that out. You are born male or female, straight up. And if you, are, if you have the hots for somebody of the same sex... That's not sexual orientation. That is an that is a dishonorable passion. That is a lust that is well sinful. This is what Romans one is about. So trying to come in and sneak in this concept of you know of same sex orientation as if you know this this new development changes biblical theology. No, it doesn't. That's that's a modern day construct to describe what's going on. That's contrary to what God's word has revealed. 
So notice how what he's trying to do here is trying to smuggle this this idea of orientation. You know, no, 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 no. You're born male or female, straight up. Okay, and if you are if you are lusting after somebody of the same of uh, the same uh, sex, that is not an orientation. That is a sinful passion that you need to repent and be forgiven of. Yes, Paul did not take a positive view of same-sex relations. Uh, that would be God the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. But the context he was writing in is worlds apart from gay people and committed monogamous relationships. No, it's the same exact context. It's the same exact problem. It's contrary to nature. It's contrary to the way God has made us. It's a dishonoring passion. The Bible never addresses the issues of sexual orientation. That's because sexual orientation is not something that is a biblical concept. It's contrary to scripture because God made you male or female, and there's a natural function for your body. Or same-sex marriage. So the- Yeah, the, the reason why it doesn't address same-sex marriage is because, again, same-sex marriage is contrary to Genesis 2 and how God made us, male and female. There's no reason why faithful Christians can't support they're gay brothers and sisters. Yeah, there is a very good reason why we can't support them in their sin because their sin is contrary to sound doctrine. And they're in danger of the fires of hell. They need to repent and to be forgiven. Again, First Timothy 1, 8 through 11 makes it very clear that same sex, behavior, lusts, all of that are contrary to sound doctrine. We cannot support our brothers and sisters, in their sin. We support them by calling them to repent and to be forgiven and tell them that Christ bled and died for that sin. It's time. If you'd like to learn... Yeah, no, it's not time. So, all right, now, you you get the point. Now, we've run really long on this little four-minute video. But I think this was necessary, which means I'm going to push off the conversation with the, the emergent folks one more day. I, I, I apologize, not one more day, two. We'll, we'll talk about it on Thursday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. But I think it was important to demonstrate to you the duplicity of Matthew Vines's exegesis. The, you, you, you have to know what it is that he's doing, and you have to know how to, to, how to refute it. The good news of Christianity is not that God loves you anyway and that God made you a certain, you know, with a, a sexual orientation where you are attracted to people of the same sex. No, Scripture says that that's a sin that Christ has bled and died for. And it's, it's very much synonymous with a guy lusting after a girl or a girl lusting after a guy that is not their spouse. It's very much akin to that, which again, according to Jesus is sinful. So the good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness in Christ and we're in his God's kindness and his mercy and his forgiveness that calls us to repent, call the sin what it is, recognize what it is, repent and to be forgiven and then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance, which means forsaking those sins and living in freedom from those sins because Christ has not set us free in him to go and chase after these things, but he set us free in them so that we would experience freedom from slavery to those sins. So this this is a mess. This really is a mess. But like I said, we'll get to the conversation then with the emergent gang 
uh, on Thursday's episodes so that you can ha- again hear how it is that they're you know they're receiving his book and what you heard pretty much is, is what's the heart of his book and his arguments and it's a complete mangling of scripture you need to know how to answer these and understand this you uh, you answer these biblically and you stand your ground and say nope Christ has not called us to set us you know, free so that we can live in lawlessness and and free in sexual immorality no he set us free from sexual immorality and Homosexual attraction and homosexual behavior, same-sex marriage, all of that is contrary to Scripture, and God doesn't bless those relationships, and instead he calls people in them to repent and to be forgiven. That's the idea. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review from Narrate Church from their youth pastor. Yeah, kind of now that uh, early in the summer, you know, lead pastor goes on vacation, the youth pastors step up. Yeah, wait till you hear it. It's not very good at all. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Yeah, when youth pastors attack, you'll get the idea here in a second.
The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Narrate Church, Helena, Montana. Caleb, the youth pastor, presiding. The name of the sermon we'll be listening to is entitled Drift, Emotional Health. And uh, I don't know how to prepare you for this sermon except for just to get you into it. And keep in mind, this is a preview of what the seeker-driven movement's going to look like because guys like Caleb eventually go on to be the lead visionary pastor of seeker-driven churches. So this is, you know, I always like playing these sermons kind of as a heads-up, here's what's coming down the pike. Just give it some time, and guys like Caleb will be the head pastors. And uh, that being the case, the future doesn't look bright. It looks actually pretty bleak. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is the sermon entitled uh, Drift, Emotional Health. Here we go. So this weekend, we are starting a brand new series called Drift, really hoping each week to explore areas in our life where we have a, a tendency to head uh, south, to, to head in a negative direction. and that re- <laughs> You mean sin because we're born dead in trespasses and sins? We're talking about the result of our, you know, sinful nature and sinful passions. Is that what you're talking about? It's not just drifting. I mean, human nature chases after sin, you know, with gusto because we're dead in trespasses and sins. We have a sinful nature that has a sinful appetite. You get what I'm saying here? It's not that we're drifting south. It's that we are we're born dead in that war with God then in our sinful flesh doesn't want to actually get with the program. It wants to fight everything that has to do with God. A negative direction. And that really in order for us to stop drifting uh, and our marriage and our finances, in order for us to stop drifting, drifting as a parent uh, and our relationships and our friendships, uh, that we really have to come to a point in our life where we have to pound a stake into the ground and say, okay, you know what? Enough drifting. It's... it's uh, <laughs> So just decide not to drift, and that'll be the solution for if you if you have drifty tendencies. You know, all you got to do is say enough is enough, and pound. You know, draw a line in the sand and say that's it. I'm not going to drift anymore. I'm done drifting. I'm, you know, I'm gonna. You know, this is nonsense. I mean, th- this isn't a biblical solution. How much you want to bet we don't really even hear the cross and Christ and what He's done for us? Yeah, this is well. Uh, this is what Tulling Chavidian refers to as like cheap law. I mean, this isn't even law done well. It's done poorly. You know, it's like, oh, you, do you have a tendency to drift? Yeah, no. Born dead in trespasses and sins, and even though I'm a Christian, I'm simul used to set peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner at the same time. You're not sure what that entails. Read Romans 7, where Paul, speaking as a Christian, says the good that I don't want to do, I... I, uh, the, the good I want to do, I don't do. The, it's the evil I don't want to do that I keep on doing. Okay, you know the Christian life is one of constant struggle against the passions of our sinful flesh, and we're called to mortify our sinful flesh. That's what Christians do, right? We continue. A negative direction, and that really, in order for us to stop drifting, uh, and our marriage and our finances, in order for us to stop drifting, drifting as a parent uh, and our relationships and our friendships, uh, that we really have to come to a point in our life where we have to pound a stake into the ground and say, "Okay, you know what? Enough drifting." 
It's it's a decision time uh, that in order for us to stop drifting, we've got to take that that rock and slam it on the shuffling pieces of paper and say, okay, uh, uh, enough drifting. It's time to do some hard work and it's time to get well. And this morning, what I would love to do with you guys is to begin a conversation uh, about in order for us to stop drifting in the many areas of our lives, uh, in order to make sure that next time will be better than last time, uh, we have to begin to think differently. In fact, we have to begin to look at our mind and how we're thinking, and we have to begin to ask questions like, what am I thinking, and why am I thinking that way? Uh, Have you guys ever made a decision, a choice in your life where you're like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? (laughs) You guys ever do that? Where you make a decision, you make a choice, and it turns out bad. It it turns out the way that you thought it wouldn't turn out. And you're like, really? Like, I thought that that would happen if I did that. Like, what in the world was I thinking? If you're anything like me, then you've, you've asked yourself that question lots of times, right? I think we can all uh, 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 think back on our lives, instances, and, and think of those times when we're just like, oh, I, don't, I have no clue what I was thinking, why did I do that? And so as you begin to, to think of some of those instances in your life, I will tell you one of my instances where I asked myself that question. So it was about three years ago, before I started working at Narrate, I used to build furniture for, for a living. And I got connected with these interior designers in Denver. And so they would, they would most often have me ship the furniture to them. Uh, but there were some occasions, some instances when shipping uh, wasn't doable uh, because there was too much of that or too much furniture because the deadline was too close and shipping couldn't meet it. And so then I would deliver the furniture to them. And so this instance uh, happened to where I had to deliver the furniture to them. And the deadline was Friday afternoon uh, at 12 o'clock. It had to be there. It had all the furniture had to be in Denver. And so Thursday afternoon rolls around and I still hadn't left to Denver to, to deliver the furniture. In fact, I was still working on the furniture, trying to finish it, finish the last pieces. And so I finally finish all the pieces of furniture at 10 o'clock that night. I load all the furniture into the truck and the trailer, and I leave to Denver at 11.30 that night. And those of you that have ever traveled from Helena to Denver know that it takes 12 hours to get there. And that's clipping along pretty good. That's, you know, not doing potty breaks every hour, you know, stretching. like That's like going there and no sightseeing. That, that's just headed there. And so the, the trip didn't start out well for me because I didn't have much room for error. And then to make things worse, uh, I was tired. I had been working long hours that week and worked a long day that day. And, and so things, things just weren't well uh, when I started the trip. But I make it to Billings. And uh, I'm feeling pretty good, but, but those of you that have ever traveled past Billings to Denver know that once you make it past Billings, there is nothing out there, is there? It's like absolute des- desolate. Like it's worse than Butte. I, I don't, that's the only way I know how to describe it. There's just nothing there. And, and I'm the type of... So he's regaling us with a personal life story rather than preaching a biblical text. I bet he learned that from his lead pastor.
desolate. Like it's worse than Butte. I don't, that's the only way I know how to describe it. There's just nothing there. And I'm the type of person that when I drive, I like to kind of feel like I'm in like a race car driver. So I like the curves and like the, the turning and the hills. But when you make it past Billings, like you just drive straight and you look at nothing and it's so boring and I get bored fast. And so so I make it to about 5 o'clock that morning, driving in the middle of who knows where in Wyoming, and I notice that I have the windows rolled down and my head out the window like a dog trying to stay awake, and I'm listening to Michael Jackson, okay? And a little bit about me. If I'm listening to Michael Jackson, I should be grooving and dancing and, like, happy because, I, like, you just cannot dance and groove when MJ is on, Right? And I wasn't doing none of that. Like, I was, like, nodding off driving to Michael Jackson, so I knew I was in trouble. And so I finally make it to somewhere in Wyoming to this gas station, cafe, diner-like place and decide that I need to pull over and wake myself up. And so I go into this diner place and sit down, order a cup of coffee to go, and I'm drinking a glass of water. And have you ever got that feeling where you're like so tired that you're delusional? You ever been there? <laughs> so I was at that point there and I was delusional. And when I get delusional, I begin talking to myself. That's what it looks like when I'm delusional. And so I begin talking to myself, things like, okay, Caleb, you really got a problem here. I was like, yep, I sure do. Because Caleb, uh, you need to make it to Denver. And Caleb, you can barely keep your eyes open right now. And there's a deadline. You've got a ways to go. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of, this is not good. And I was like, Caleb, you can't take a nap because you have no room for error. I was like, yep, yep, yep. And And I was like, okay, Caleb. Here's the thing. The only problem here is that you can't keep your eyes open. Like, let's forget about you being tired because, Caleb, you can man up and you cannot be tired. The only problem here is that you can't keep your eyes open. I'm like, yeah, I agree with that. So I'm like, hey, is it duct tape to open the eyes? Is it toothpicks? Like, how am I going to keep my eyes open? And at that moment, I see a thing of Tabasco sauce sitting on the table. And I instantly think to myself, aha, brilliant idea, Caleb, brilliant. And so I take the thing of Tabasco sauce. Remember, I'm delusional at this point. Take the thing of Tabasco sauce and I make sure that no one's looking around because what I'm about to do is a little bit out there. And I open my eye and I tilt my head and I pour Tabasco sauce in my eye delusional remember and let me just tell you as soon as that drop hit my eyeball i have never felt so fully and painfully alive in my life oh my goodness i don't know what to, i don't know how to explain it to you uh, basically it was exhilarating that that's the only word i know uh, and, and evidently i did not think about that like i have nerves connected to to my eyeball that are connected to the rest of my body because when when that drop hit my eyeball uh, it was like five going throughout my whole body. It was like people were injecting Tabasco sauce in my veins and like everywhere. It was, it was so painful. And as soon as that drop hit my eye... Yeah, it's painful to listen to. You're supposed to be preaching the word. Why do I feel like you don't know how to do that? Like everywhere. It was, it was so painful. And as soon as that drop hit my eyeball... I instantly asked myself the question, Caleb, what were you thinking? (laughs) Caleb, I know you're delusional, but really Tabasco sauce in the eye? Come on. 
But to finish the story, I did make it to Denver alive, and I got out of the truck, and uh, uh, the, the guy was waiting for me, and I got out, and he's like, dude, what happened to your face? I was like, what? Because <laughs> my left eye was like bright red, bloodshot, fiery looking, and my right eye, it was like, it was closed. It was tired. It was done for. I was like, I don't know, medical, science, something. <laughs> uh, but what about you? You ever make a decision, make a choice? Where you're like, ah, oh, what in the world was I thinking? You ever make a choice, make a decision in your life? You make it sound like sin is like a, you know, whoops, I didn't mean to put Tabasco sauce in my eye. What was I thinking? Because, you know, the, the things you're talking about. Let's say if a marriage is having problems, okay? Sometimes marriages have problems because one spouse is unfaithful. They're engaging in sexual immorality. And so... This isn't the, the this isn't like an oopsie. Well, I, you know, I accidentally, you know, what was I thinking? I put Tabasco sauce in my eye. That's not it at all. You got to get down to the core of the matter. The core is your blackened heart, dead in trespasses and sins. That's you know, and all of those sinful lusts and passions that come in, you know, through our sinful nature. You know, if you're having problem with money, it's not that you're. Whoops! I made a bad decision. You got to deal with the underlying problem there. The underlying problem is the greed that's coming out of your sinful, blackened heart. Again, this is just cheap, cheap, cheap law that doesn't address sin at all as what it really is. Sent down and no payments for three years. I didn't need it, but I wanted it. What was I thinking? Friend came to me about an investment and said if I put this much money down, then I'd get 30% return. I mean, it was almost too good to be true. And my dad always told me if it's too good to be true, then it's too good to be true. Sure enough. It- and the reason why people give you these fake offers of stuff that's too good to be true is because they're playing off of your greed. Uh huh. Which is a sin. King friend came to me about an investment uh, and said, if I put this much money down, then I'd get thirty percent return. I mean, it was almost too good to be true. And my dad always told me, if it's too good to be true, then it's too good to be true. Sure enough, it was too good to be true. What was I thinking? I should have studied harder, shouldn't have gone to so many parties, shouldn't have hung out with this group of people or that group of people. What was I thinking? See, see, we all intuitively ask the question, but what was I thinking when things go bad? And when things don't turn out the way that we thought they would turn out, but but we never actually pause on that question, do, do we? We all ask the question, what was I thinking? But we never actually dig deep into the ans- uh, that question to come up with some answers. We end up hopping right back into life, and we end up making the same decisions and the same choices, and we get right back into those relationships, and we get right back into debt, And we just keep drifting. And here's the thing about me and you. If you keep thinking the way you used to think, you'll keep doing the things that you used to do. And nothing will ever really change. You'll just keep drifting. And if you're like me, uh, sometimes you can be at a spot in your life where, where the thought of not changing, the thought of drifting, the thought of not growing and not improving can can be a little bit scary, can it? Uh, The the thought to keep making the same decisions and the same choices can be a little bit frightening. The, The thought to put Tabasco sauce in your eye again is not appealing. 
Uh, some of you are at a spot in your life where you don't like where you're at. And quite honestly, some of you, you don't like you. And it's not that other people don't like you. It's that you don't like you. It's that you've become a you that not even you like. Mm-hmm. Again, we're talking about the consequences and the results of sin. That's really what he's talking about, but he's not addressing it as if it's that. Weird. Let's continue. Painful on the inside. And for me and for everybody else, it looks like your life is going great. And you even recognize that that compared to the majority of the world, like your life is going great. I I mean, when when you think about it, you you have a great job and the the job has has lots of opportunities to grow and to learn and improve. And and it allows you to make enough money to provide for yourself. Uh, You have a house, you have a reliable vehicle, there's vacation on the way. Uh, You have a great group of friends that you can hang out with on a Friday night and laugh and share memories. Uh, You have a great family. You have a spouser, you know, that they get on your nerves sometimes, but you love them. You have kids, and sure, they annoy you sometimes, but, but, but you care about them. And for me and for everybody else, it looks like your life is going great, that nothing needs to change, that you're living the dream, that however you're drifting about in life, just to keep drifting that way. But if we can be honest with each other this morning, I want to be honest. Uh, some of you have created a life. If you're going to be honest, you're going to have to deal with sin as sin and call them to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That looks good on the outside. But it's so painful on the inside. Uh, This past January, that that was exactly where I was at in life. Uh, What I discovered about myself was that I had created a life that looked good on the outside. But on the inside, it was so painful and hurtful and damaging. And for everybody else, looking at my life, it looked like life was going how I wanted it to to go. I mean, I had a great job, had a relationship, had a house, had had money to live comfortably. I had great friends and community. It looked like nothing needed to change, that, that I was doing everything right. But when the lights would go down, when I would get by myself, and when I was honest with myself, I didn't like me at all. I didn't like where I... Yeah, again, this is probably you wrestling with your sinful nature. Let's call it what the Bible calls it. Let's address it the way the Bible addresses it. Let's give the solution that the Bible gives for this problem, which is Christ and him crucified for our sins. I was at, I didn't like my thoughts, my emotions, my feelings, the way that I was thinking. And I had felt that way about myself for some time. And for the first time in my life, I began to realize that there was something deep going on inside of me, that there was something deep there. And the memory is so, so clear for me. Yeah, it's called a sinful nature. Because I was sitting on a plane headed back to Helena, 
It was the week after Christmas. The week after Christmas, the staff usually gets some time off. I think we had five days off this this past Christmas. And so decided to take advantage of that. I love to travel. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go travel uh, these five days. And so uh, my brother and sister-in-law had just moved to San Francisco. I had never been there. I love big cities, experiencing all the culture and uh, food that you can't get in, you know, Helena. And I love people watching. And heard there was a bunch of weirdos down there. So I was like, yeah, I'll go, walk. I'll go people watching. So I went down there and really designed the trip so that way I could stay busy the whole time and that I wouldn't have to really think about reality. And so did that, ate a lot of good food, saw a bunch of weird people, uh, saw a bunch of cool sights, and didn't really think until the end of the trip. I got on the plane and reality set in for me and the emotions started flooding back. And you know that feeling where you feel all alone, but yet you're surrounded by by people. I had that. I was on this plane. I was surrounded by people I didn't know, babies crying, uh, people talking and laughing. The guy right right next to me, half of his body weight was on me. You know, it was one of those experiences. But, But yet I felt so alone. And the emotions and thoughts came to me about reality and and i began to to think of of anxiety and i began to have depression and and stress and unhappiness with with the thought of having to come back to helena and that wasn't the first time that i had felt that way about where i was living and, and what i was doing and, and once again, it did not make sense to me. Like, like why the anxiety? Why the stress? Why the depression? Why the, the hopelessness? But because, Caleb, it doesn't make sense. Because, I mean, Caleb, look at your life. You have a great job. You love getting to be a part of Narrate. Uh, you have a great group of friends and community, community that care and love about you. You love hanging out with them. You have a house. You have enough money to live comfortably. Uh, why the anxiety? Why the, the unhappiness? And as I began to process all of the thoughts, for the first time I realized that that my anxiety, my depression, my unhappiness, I I didn't really have anything to do with my circumstances. It didn't have to do with the job I had. It didn't have to do with the city I was living in. It didn't have to do with how much money I had. But it had to do with something deeper. It had to do with something inside. It had to do with my thoughts and my emotions and the the things I was thinking. And for the first time in my life, I began to pause down on there. I began to to look at, at what I was thinking and I began to, to dig up some, some answers. I began to, to think myself, okay, Caleb, what, what are you thinking and why are you thinking that way? Because what you're feeling right now, you're tired of feeling that way. And so I just began to dig deep and I paused there. And what I discovered about myself was a little bit shocking. And to be honest, it was a little bit painful. Because what I discovered was that my thoughts, my thinking of anxiety of coming back to Helena had not to do with Helena, but had to do with me not wanting to be known. With me not wanting to have to be vulnerable to my friends and the people that I know in Helena and the fear that if people actually knew me. If they knew the decisions and the choices that I've made, then they wouldn't accept me and that they would judge me and that they would think that I was unlovable. And that my, my, uh, my fear of coming back to Helena and, and working uh, uh, had less to do with the job 
But it had more to do with a discontentment issue. And, and the thought of that the grass is always greener on the other side, that, that if I just got this job, if I just... What's a discontentment issue? Is that the sin of coveting? I mean, you're rambling on and on with a psychobabble that actually isn't really getting to the heart of the matter, which is sin. Just moved uh, there, then everything would be okay. And as I began to dig deeper into my discontentment mindset, uh, what, what I discovered and kind of came up with was that that makes sense because that's how, that's how I grew up with. Uh, that, that was my parents. My parents were discontent. And, and growing up every couple of years, we would move to a new town, to a new city. Uh, they would get a new job. And it was if we could just buy this piece of property and do this investment and get this much money back, then everything will be okay. And so you're dealing with coveting and greed. That's what you're talking about. That's what you're describing. Why aren't you describing this in biblical terms and calling people to repent of the sin and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ? And as I began to process all the things that I was thinking, uh, what I began to realize was that my thinking was, was leaking into my life. That, that my thinking and the thoughts that I was having, I realized that they were dictating my decisions and my choices. Your thinking was leaking into your life. Well, out of the heart, you know, you're describing sin, which begins in the heart and then gives birth to action. Yeah, you're describing the cycle of sin that Jesus talks about. And life. And I love how John Ortberg says it. He says this. The uh, John Ortberg is not one of the disciples. The way we live inevitably will be a reflection of how we think. The way that you live inevitably uh, will be a reflection of how you think. Well, yeah, out of the heart comes all kinds of sinful desires, right? This is what Jesus says. So you're describing sin that begins in the heart. What's your solution for this? And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because what we think eventually leaks into our lives and eventually it affects our decisions and our choices. And if we have un... Eventually, it affects our decisions and our choices. Yeah, well, yeah, that sin has a way of eventually getting out on the surface. Like, so eventually, it happens, like, daily. Healthiness in our mind, eventually, that affects us. And it comes to surface. If you have a lust problem and, and you don't address that lust problem, if you just leave that alone, eventually... A, a lust problem. A lust... Yeah, he's, he's got lust issues. Yeah, he's got a lust problem. Again, this is talking about sinfulness that begins in our heart and shows that we are by nature sinners. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. That's how that works. You're describing the cycle of sin that begins down in the heart. So you're, you're identifying that this is truly a problem, okay? And even though you're doing a terrible job of actually getting to the depth and magnitude of the situation, you, you understand there's something terribly wrong here. And you understand that it runs deep. What's going to be the solution? That can, that can uh, lead to, to porn. And then, you know, you can keep that to yourself for a little bit. But, but eventually that, that leaks into your marriage. It leaks into your relationships. And it, and it ends up in disconnection, ends up in divorce and affairs. And the sexual appetite is never fully satisfied.
And it's not that you have a porn problem. It's that you have a lust problem. No, it's that you have a sinful nature. That's the problem. Unhealthiness, thoughts of loneliness, uh, that you'll never get married, that that you'll be single the rest of your life. How does the saying go, the heart of humanity's problem is the human heart? That's the problem. Okay, we're all sinful by nature, born dead in trespasses and sins, and have these sinful lusts and passions that you know, that are part of our sinful nature. That no one will love you can lead you to get in unhealthy dating relationships, uh, relationships that you should never be in, that you know you shouldn't be in, uh, can make you cross the physical boundaries when you know you shouldn't be crossing them uh, be, because you just want to be loved by someone. And it's not that you have a dating problem, it's that you have an unhealthy mindset that you'll never get married, an unhealthy mind. An unhealthy mindset. Yeah, you're not getting down to the root at all. Mindset of loneliness, uh, unhealthy thoughts of money, uh, of uh, greed, of security can, can lead you to put your career, uh, uh, work above your family. And that can be okay for a little bit, but, but eventually that leaks into your marriage, into your kids' lives. And when your kids get to be teenagers... Yeah, again, surface... He's dealing with a a very, very deep, pernicious problem with a surface analysis. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Paul writes, What shall we say? That the law is sin? Well, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to me to death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. But did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, my sinful flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Um, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You see where Paul's solution then lies? It's in Christ. Let's see if Caleb figures this out, because he's describing something that, well, all Christians experience. The problem is, is the roots right all the way down to the core of our of our sinful flesh. And the solution is the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and the fact that we're not condemned. Teenagers, when they end up moving out, you have little to no relationship with them. And the way we treat our spouse, the, the, the way that we parent, what types of friends we have, what types of relationships we have, are a reflection of how we think. Because, see, what makes you, you is the way that you think. What makes me, me is the way that I think. And so the question for me and for you is, okay, then, then how, how, how do you uh, make sure that the unhealthy mindset that, that you can, how, how do you address that? How do you make sure that the unhealthy thoughts, how, how do you get rid of those? How do you make sure the, that those don't leak into your life? How do you stop drifting about in life? How, how do you not create a life that looks good on the outside? But how do you actually create a life that looks good on the inside? Yeah, I don't think you're going to actually come up with a solution to this that actually is truly biblical. And that day on the plane, I began to ask myself the question, uh, Caleb, how, how do I become the me that I want to be and the me that I was created and designed to be? How do, uh, how do, I, how do I become the me I want to be? Yeah, you've been reading Ortberg, which is basically, you know, Ortberg kind of, you know, is a rehashing of uh, Dallas Willard's ideas. Not good. This is not. This is this is not going to work. This is what we're not going to hear. It, what we're going to hear is not actually the biblical solution. How do you become the you that you want to be and the you that you were designed and created to be? How do we make sure that next time is better than last time? How do we how do we stop drifting in our decisions and our choices? And life, and as I began to think of all of those things, what I began to discover is that it goes back to the question of what are you thinking and why are you thinking that way and actually pausing there and digging there with those questions and beginning to come up with some answers because what makes you, you is the way that you think. What makes me, me is the way that I think. And that we actually have to begin to think differently if we want to make sure that next time will be better. Than- so the solution is just think different? It, wasn't that the slogan from like an old Apple computer commercial? Just think different? Really? Than last time. And if we want to stop drifting about in life, we have to begin to think differently. 
And when you open up the pages of the text from Genesis to Revelation, uh, that's exactly what you read about. You read about a God who invites people after people to, to begin to think differently and to begin to think. Where, where in the scripture does it talk about God's invitation to come and think differently? To attune their thinking to his thinking. And there's this guy named Paul that, that talks about this idea of thinking differently. And I think Paul is so brilliant, and I think you'll discover why in a little bit. Uh, but, but what Paul talks about is that in order to make sure that next time is better than last time, in order for, for us uh, to stop drifting about in life, we have to begin to think differently. And in order for us to begin to think differently, we have to change, and change always starts in the mind. And so this, this is what Paul says in Romans. He says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. So, so in other words, uh, don't be like everybody else. Uh, don't conform. Uh, don't drift about in culture like everyone else is drifting. Uh, just because culture uh, says that this is okay and this type of relationship won't hurt you and you can fool around in this area in your life and, and you can get in debt and, and there will be no consequences doesn't mean that that's okay. Just because everyone else is drifting in culture doesn't mean that, that you should drift. Don't be like everybody else. In other words, I like it. How are you getting that Paul's talking about don't drift in culture? Uh, the passage in question is Romans chapter 12. Okay. Let me read it to you in context. Um, verse one, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's right. It, you know, Paul begins this this by reminding them again of the gospel he's been preaching for literally the first 11 chapters. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Uh-huh. So you see what's going on in this text, and you can see by looking at what the text is saying in context that, well, unfortunately, Caleb here is uh, monkeying with the text. Illustration, so, so this might help you. Uh, don't be this guy. Uh, uh, don't be like everybody else. Don't be a cookie cutter where it's next, next, next. Sure, the frosting looks different. Sure, it's smiley face, uh, frown face, smiley face, frown, fa- frown face, different eyeballs. But, but, but they're all p- pretty much the, the same, aren't they? They're cookie. So Paul's speaking against being a cookie cutter person? I don't think so. Cutter, don't be this guy. And see, being this guy takes no effort in, in life, does it? Uh, Being like everybody else uh, is pretty easy. You can wake up in the morning and and be this guy. You you can wake up and have no discipline and not work hard and and just drift about in culture. And and Paul says, don't don't be that guy. And then he gives us a contrast of what to be. He says this, but be transformed. But be transformed. So, so don't be this guy. Don't be like everybody else. But I think what Paul is getting at is be... Yeah, remember that section begins with in light of God's mercies. Uh-huh. 
you can't you can't even begin to understand this without first and foremost really understanding the gospel and forgiveness of sins and being justified by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone. <laughs> Be one of these guys, right? Or I like this even better. Don't be this guy. But be this guy. Don't be a conformer, but be a transformer. <laughs> I love this. Uh, does anyone know? So he brought a transformer on the stage. I don't know who this guy is, by the way. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? Does no one know? I don't know either. But but I think what Paul is saying is, hey, hey, don't be don't be like don't be like everybody else, but but be different. Uh, be a transformer, not a conformer. And then what Paul Paul says next, he really addresses the question of, okay, how do I not be a conformer, how, but a transformer? How do I stop drifting about in life? How do I make sure that next time is better than last time? And what? Paul, yeah, but Paul's not talking about that. Paul says is this: if you want to be transformed and not be like everybody else then uh it's by the renewing of your mind by the renewing of your mind uh, another way you put it is renew equals restore uh how many of you guys have ever restored anything in your life a couple of you yeah, yeah. uh i've I'm never yeah, and you're missing all of what Paul says right after that, which I just read. I mean, this is ridiculous. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all of the same functions. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Yeah, see, then he goes on to talk about prophecy and proportion, uh, proportion to our faith, service and teaching and exhortation and things like that. Um, but you're taking this text out of context, and by doing that, you're not addressing what the text is actually about. I've never restored a car, but, but I know enough to know that, first off, restoring something takes a lot of work, doesn't it? It takes a lot of time, and it takes getting your hands a little bit dirty. And when you restore something, what you have to do first is you have to take off the old before you can put on the new, Right? Uh, when you restore a car, you, you have to you sandblast all the old paint off, and then you've got to bondo all the cracks and crevices, and then you have to grind it and, and get it uh, uh, in preparation before you can put the new paint on. And if you put the new paint on be- before you do the hard work and before you take the, the, uh, the steps, uh, w- what ends up happening? Uh, the paint peels off, right? And the paint will chip, and, and it'll look even worse than it did before. It's kind of like if you have a lust problem, and, and you try to fix it by, by porn, that's just a temporary satisfaction, and, and actually that will uh, damage you even more. If you have a discontentment issue, uh, getting a new job, moving to a new city doesn't help. Uh, you're just Can I just make the obvious here? If you have a, quote, lust problem... Porn is not found as a solution to the problem. Porn is a manifestation of the sin problem itself. Just prolonging the real issue. If you have a money problem, a greed problem, a getting... Greed, the sin, sin, that's idolatry. More money, uh, getting a raise doesn't do anything because it's, it's mo' money, mo' problems, right? Uh, 
And the list goes on. And so what Paul says is, hey, uh, you need to restore you. You need to renew your mind. You need to restore you. Where's Jesus? What have you done with him? Are you aware of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and all of that stuff? And, And renewing your mind, it takes some hard work. And it takes getting your hands a little bit dirty. And in the process of it, it's not very fun. Uh, When you're restoring a car, uh, that's not very fun. And when you're in the process of restoring your mind, of renewing your mind, sometimes it can look a little bit ugly, right? It's kind of like when you're restoring a car and in the, in the middle of it, it doesn't look very nice. It doesn't look very appealing. Uh, people can, 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 can look at it and, and, and kind of have these frown faces. And, and that's what Paul's kind of saying. You've got to renew your mind, restore your mind. And the reason that Paul, I think Paul is so brilliant is this. Because what, what Paul is suggesting is that we have to begin to think differently. We have to renew our mind. What Paul is saying is that we have to... Yeah, you have no clue what Paul is saying because you're not actually exegeting the text. You haven't read this in its context. You're ignoring all of the previous chapters. You're sitting here trying to make it sound like Paul is teaching this stuff, and he's not teaching any of it. If you go back and read the the epistle to the Romans, starting at chapter 1, verse 1, and keep reading through this section, you'll see he's not teaching any of this nonsense. By ripping him out of context, you're making him say something he ain't saying. This isn't Christian doctrine. This is not the same thing as Christian sanctification. Rewire our brain. This is the reason I think Paul is so brilliant. Because what Paul understood some 2,000 years ago was that God and science are not exclusive. But but actually that God and science go hand in hand. And- uh, what? God and science? What are you talking about? And Paul is saying, hey, I, you need to rewire your brain. And what scientists have understood now is that the brain is amazingly changeable. And that we can actually rewire our brain, that we can think differently. And that what, what scientists have, have discovered is that we have something in our brain called neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity... <laughs> so Paul's talking about neuroplasticity. Really? Um, just because you, you throw the term neuroplasticity out there doesn't mean that you know what it means. Plasticity uh, changes our neural pathways that, that then changes the way that we think. And when we change the way that we think, it changes our a- uh, actions and our behaviors and our decisions and choices. So if you want to be more like Jesus, you need to join Luminosity.com, you know, because that's all about brain games that will help neuroplasticity. <sighs> Paul, uh, what Paul understood some 2,000 years ago, sure, he didn't put a name to it. Sure, he, he didn't fully understand neuroplasticity. But what Paul understood was that we could rewire our brains, that we could think differently, that we can literally change our mind. And then this is what Paul says next. He says, then... Then once you do the hard work, then once you rewire your brain, then once you get your hands dirty, then once you take the time to renew your mind, then... Then once you, once you, once you. Where's Jesus? Where's the sanctifying work of the Spirit? 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, things like that, right? Um, why is it that you're talking about all these things we've got to do and then you're bringing neuroplasticity in? And uh, and you're basically talking about a Holy Spirit-less, a Christ-less producing of the fruits of the Spirit. How is that even possible? You will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you follow God, don't you want to know what God's plan for your life is? Yeah, I, I think even if you don't follow God, uh, maybe maybe you're a theist and someone that believes in a God higher power, but the whole Jesus church thing, it's a little bit confusing for you. And you, you look at all the different religions and, and opinions out there and you're like, I, I'm out, like too, too much for me. Uh, don't you, though, even want to know what God's plan for, for your life is? Sure you do. I think we all do. And what Paul says is that is that if we if we do some hard work, if if we uh, if we stop drifting about in life, that that if we begin to renew our mind, if we think differently, if we restore ourselves, then then we'll actually discover what God's uh, good. I mean, you keep throwing these terms out as if you know if you think everybody knows what you're talking about. How, how how do you do this again? How is this accomplished? Hmm? Good and pleasing and perfect plan for our life is that if we actually attune our thinking to his thinking, then, then you'll become the you that you want to be and the you that you were created and designed to be. And that is God's invitation to, to you and to me. And so now the question is this, is, okay, so, so how do you rewire your brain? How do you renew your mind? How do you not be a conformer but be a transformer? How do you, how do you make sure that next time is better than last time? Like, like how, now how, how's the, the – we, we want some answers. How do you begin to think differently and rewire your brain? And the last six months I've been, I've been working on this personally. And the last six months, I've been working. I'm sure. You, I mean, I mean, six whole months of effort. I'm, I'm sure you're great at it by now. I mean, I can't. I'm just sitting here on pins and needles, waiting for this advice to come down from Mount Olympus. Working on renewing my mind, and I'm nowhere close to where I need to be. I have a long ways to go, uh, but I am making some progress. And throughout the last six months, I've made four observations uh, that I would love to share with you. And, and no, please just share with us your observations because that l- rises to the level of Christian doctrine like in no way whatsoever. But go ahead, share your observations. And these are not my observations. I've, I've took these from other people, but I have found them extremely helpful. And I, I'm glad you have. Did you find them in the Bible? Insightful to me with, with rewiring my brain and renewing my mind. And so I, I'd love to share those with you this morning. So four observations about renewing and rewriting your brain. Observation number one, breathing deep. Uh, th- this is one of those, to be honest, this is... So step one to being more like Jesus is deep breathing exercises? Really? This is one of those, I did not want to 
have be on my observation list to you. I did not want to share it to you because it sounds weird, right? Especially in a church setting, you're like, really? You're going to tell me? If God the Holy Spirit intended us to be engaging in deep breathing exercises, how come the Apostle Paul doesn't say, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and here's how you do that. Breathe in, count to three, hold it, breathe out. Yeah, breathe in, breathe out. Wax on, wax. Why didn't Scripture say this? Tell me to breathe deep in a church. Yeah, uh, you're like, really, Caleb, breathe deep. That's what your second grade teacher told you to do when you were, you know, throwing these hissy fits was breathe deep. Uh, but, but seriously, uh, well, what I've been learning to do is every time I get anxious, every time I get anxiety about the past or anxiety about a future relationship, I get jealous about something going on. I take a step back and to take a couple big, deep breaths. And there's a bunch of science and study and research behind it, and I won't bore you with that. But, but once again, I think like, like science and God, they go such hand in hand. And basically what the studies and research say is that when we breathe deep, we're releasing toxins out of our body. That, that, that we're releasing the emotional stress and anxiety uh, out and pain out of us. And that when we breathe deep and we let those toxins and stress and anxiety out, we begin to think clearly and calmly. And in order for us to renew our mind and rewire our brain, we have to think calmly and we have to think clearly. And then observation number two, journal. So breathe in, breathe out, and think clearly. Observation two is what? Journaling. Journaling. Another one of those. I was like, really? I don't want to tell everyone this. How come the Bible doesn't teach us to breathe in, breathe out, and journal? Hmm? But uh, journaling. Uh, uh, very helpful. And, and if you're a guy, you're like, really, Caleb, you're telling me to journal. You're like, that's a little too gushy for me. Like, that is not very macho. And I'm with you on that. And if that's where you're at, then don't tell anyone you journal or you breathe deep. Like, you can just keep that to yourself. Like, I'm okay with that. Now, of course, you all know that I breathe deep and journal, so don't hold that against me. But but, but seriously, keep it to yourself. That, that's okay. And, and, and you're like, I'm not going to carry like a pocket book that says like my journal. Like that would look like, right? Like people would judge me. Uh, that, that's fine. I, 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 I journal on my phone actually. I love technology. So uh, this is easy and convenient for me. But what I, begin, what I began doing is trying to get in the habit of once a day really vomiting my, my thoughts and my emotions and the things that I'm thinking uh, uh, writing them down. And when you write them down, you're able to clearly articulate uh, what you're thinking and why you're thinking that way. And then once it's, it's out there, you, you can then take a look at it again. And it's really helpful to give you some insight. And even these, these last couple of months of looking back through my journals in you know, uh, February and January, just being able to see some progress that I've made. And then also some things where I'm like, haven't made any progress on that. Got a long ways to go. And, and then observation number three, and uh, 
could not tell you how important I think this one is. Get outside help. Uh, the day my plane landed, I uh, called a friend and knew he had been seeing a therapist and said, hey, I need their number. Uh, I need to get some outside help uh, and understanding that uh, there are people out there that uh, know a whole lot more about the brain and emotional stuff than I do. And so beginning to process some of the past things that have happened to me, some of the past experience and choices and decisions and, and future stuff and, and, and having someone to be able to process and talk with and give me some fresh insight to that have been extremely helpful. It's been worth uh, all the money and the time spent on that. And quite frankly, some of you, that's where you're at. Uh, The next step for you is getting some outside help and getting some insight into your life. Some of you, uh, uh, quite frankly, you've had some messy stuff that, that has happened to you. Um, Maybe as a child, what someone did to you. Uh, uh, Some of you just got out of a relationship uh, that you you don't know if you'll ever be able to recover from. And your mind right now is is just going crazy. And some of you, you you need to process that with some people. And what I would love for you to know is that we as a church, we as a staff, we as Narrate... Uh, desire to get well, and we desire you to get well. And that we're not too proud, we're not too uppity, that we don't want to over-spiritualize some things in your life that you, you, need, to, you need to go and get some help. And you need to process with, with a professional, with, with a therapist. And, and that, that we would love to resource you to people in the community that, that, that are brilliant people that would love to talk with you about some stuff that you've been going through, some stuff that has happened to you. Uh, and, and then they can give you some tools and insight to, to your life. Mm-hmm. So scripture doesn't transform your mind. Deep breathing does. Journaling does. And uh, therapy does. Hmm. And begin restoration and rewiring your brain. And then number four, uh, asking God to search you. Uh, And the whole process when... And then asking God to search you. When you're rewiring your brain and when you're renewing your mind, uh, first off, it's a constant journey. uh, And you continually are going to have to work on it. But but in the whole process, I've constantly have had to go back to God and say, God, can, can, can you search me on this? Uh, uh, is this healthy? Is this unhealthy? And I've constantly have had to go back to, to Psalms where it says, uh, search me, God, and know my heart. Uh, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Constantly having to go back to God and say, God, God uh, search me on this. Uh, some, bring up some, some things that I need to see in my life. Test me. Is this- How about read your Bible so you know what the will of God is and use God's word you know, as the thing to test your heart against? You see what I'm saying? You have something objective then rather than, okay, God, uh, search my heart. And then you're kind of listening. Uh, are you talking? I can't hear you, God. Um, can you talk a little louder? Uh, is that you? Oh, no, that was my stomach. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Is healthy? Is this unhealthy? And, and know that, that when you take the time, when you do the hard work to renew your mind and rewire your brain, uh, it's worth the effort. And, and you'll begin to see God in a whole new way. And you'll end up not being a conformer, but a transformer. 
And you'll begin to stop drifting about in your, your life. And next time will be better than last time. So I don't know. Where- See, next time will be better than last time. All you got to do is deep, breathe deep, journal, uh, get a therapist, and you know, and then ask God to search you. And then, ta-da, your, your, the neuroplasticity thing will kick in, and then your results will be better. Uh-huh. This isn't Christian sanctification. It's even close where this lands for you this morning. Uh, Some of you uh, are at a spot in your life where you don't like where you're at. In fact, you don't like you. Uh, My hope, my prayer for for you, uh, and no matter who you are, where you're at in life, uh, no matter the decisions, the choices that you've made, that you haven't made, no matter uh, if you've been following Jesus for 20 years or this is the first time you've ever stepped foot in a church, that that you would know that, that, that when you begin to think differently, when you do some hard work and you renew your mind, uh, you, you'll discover uh, the you that you were created to be and the you that you were designed to, to be. That, that, that when you rewire your brain and begin to think differently and attune your thinking to God's thinking, you'll create a life that doesn't just look good on the outside, but a life that actually feels good on the inside. And you'll discover what God's good and pleasing and perfect plan for your life is, and that and that's why that's why uh, God sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross. So we get a mention of the cross here at the end. Why did He do it again? To take our brokenness, so that way we could begin to think differently. So Jesus died on the cross to take our brokenness, so we can think differently. That's not the gospel, and that's the end of the sermon. Wow. Uh, yeah, the future looks very bleak uh, for the megachurch movement with uh, guys like Caleb uh, eventually going to fill out the ranks as the you know, primary vision casting leaders once they graduate from being youth ministers. And, uh, and well, do you think the youth there at Narrate Church are hearing about repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? No, not at all. And the folks there at uh, Narrate Church, they didn't hear it either. What a mess. What did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>